0: by the power of the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament then we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. My friends it's just that simple.
1: It's in the divine service that he's there for you that he delivers the forgiveness that's where he promises forgiveness will be Uh,
0: and so that's why it's so important uh, to be in church. We long that God would answer the prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Get me out of here. Get me out of this sin-filled world. And that is Jesus Christ
1: uh, who says, do not count their sin against them, for my blood has paid the price for that. Now on 95.7 FM, it's Proclaiming the One with Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Oline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, in Lincoln, Nebraska.
0: Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. This is Pastor Clint Poppy, Along with me, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Albert Bader. We are privileged to serve at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Thanks, Jim, for that uh, intro. I don't know what else to say. Uh, Thank you. Uh, we are looking, as we do each week, at the readings for the upcoming Sunday worship service. This week, we're going to be looking at the readings for the second Sunday after Epiphany. Pastor, tell me a little bit about the season of Epiphany. What is this word, Epiphany, all about, and why do we have a whole season devoted to it?
1: Yeah, The word Epiphany means to make manifest or to reveal, let something shine forth. Uh, it comes from uh, uh, a Greek word epiphanos Uh, and what it is all about is we've had christ born the incarnation a miracle of that celebrated at the time of christmas and now uh, the season of epiphany works to reveal who that uh, incarnated one is who is jesus and the season of epiphany uh, lets us know that he is both
0: god and man uh, hidden in that one person of jesus who is jesus and how has god revealed, made him known, manifested Jesus to us. Pay close attention to the readings and the hymns during this season for the epiphany that God has for each one of you that are listening here today. Vicar, the Introit for today is a portion of Psalm 66, and uh, the antiphon is also including Psalm 92, verse 1. Would you share those words, please?
2: All the earth worships you and sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Shout for joy to the Lord. All the earth sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me.
0: Steadfast love. Once again, in our introit, we have that uh, marvelous term, that marvelous phrase. As you've heard us say many times on this program, that uh, word that we really can't translate into English, uh, in the Hebrew, it's hesed. You got to have a little uh, a little phlegm in your throat to say it really well. Hesed. How am I doing, Vicar? <laughs>
2: Sounds pretty good to me.
0: Okay, uh, that hesed word, the steadfast love of the Lord, uh, Pastor. Just a few words on uh, the steadfast love of the Lord. Uh Yeah, the
1: steadfast love of the Lord is so important because uh, the word steadfast means it's constant. It's always there. It never stops. And the word love there um, reminds us that um, love uh, is always present from God. And the love of God is shown in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is love, not that we love God, but rather that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for all of our sins and grant us eternal life. And so uh, uh, that is hesed.
0: Chesed, that steadfast love, keep that in the back of your mind while we unpack the rest of this introit. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. One of the themes of Epiphany is that the Savior of the Jews is also the Savior of the Gentiles. The significance vicar of all the earth worships you during this season of Epiphany.
2: All the earth worships him. Uh, we learned about this last week in uh, our first readings for the Epiphany, that the Magi came clear from the east, these Gentile people, to worship he who was born King of the Jews. So it shows that Jesus is not only King of the Jews, but also King of all peoples, King to all the Gentiles. And uh, it's interesting, too, to think about all the earth worships you, uh, Not just the people of the earth, but everything in God's creation sings praises to him and bows down to him. Uh, Jesus calmed the storm because the sea and the wind and everything knew who was Lord over it. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that in our uh, gospel reading for today from St. John.
0: That's very well said, Vicar. And uh, this is not just all people, but all creation. And uh, that is a... um, an excellent point to make because all creation now groans in eager expectation of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God promised to send a Savior. He kept that promise in the person and work of Jesus. He continues to bring that Savior to us now in word and sacrament. And as we've uh, looked at in great, great detail over the last uh, oh several weeks, especially the first couple of weeks in Advent and the last few weeks of the church year, God promises that Christ will come again in power and might and glory to judge both the living and the dead. So today we gather here, all the earth worships and sings praises to you. Why? We go a little bit uh, further down and uh, a phrase is repeated twice. Pastor, and I want you to unpack that for us. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds? So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. First of all, why do we need to say this to God? Uh, Does he have a a self-esteem problem? Do we need to uh, stroke God's ego and uh, encourage him a little bit? What is this uh, uh, say to God? How awesome are your deeds? It's not that
1: God needs his ego stroked or that God doubts who he is or what he's done. But rather, oftentimes, it's good for us to say who God is and what he's done. And that's a confession of faith uh, that we ought to say, uh, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. And so we say to God, how awesome are your deeds, uh, so that we might remember them. And the deeds that are awesome that God does, as we've said already here, um, is... Christ crucified and risen to take away the sins of the world. Uh, Underneath those, you have other great and awesome deeds of God that uh, help teach us about that from the Old Testament times, the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, the uh, uh, plagues in Egypt, all sorts of things that God does that teach us to look forward
0: to Jesus, the greatest and awesomest deed that God ever accomplished. Vicar, uh, when, we come, when we talk about the awesome deeds of the Lord, unpack that a little bit according to the outline or structure of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, God the Father, who is uh, Creator and Preserver. God the Son, who is Redeemer. God the Holy Spirit, who is Sanctifier. Uh, in a nutshell, recap the awesome deeds of God according to that uh, outline.
2: Yeah, the awesome deeds of God, the Father Almighty. He's the one who brought forth all of creation. He's the one who brought forth you and me and Pastor Moline and every other person and Pastor thing. Moline, too? Yes, yes Pastor I. Moline, too. Uh, brought forth everything, and not only that, but he continues to give us the things that we need to support our bodies so that we might have life here in this world, but also provides the means to Feed our souls, to give us faith, so that we might have life everlasting with Him. And that is done in the second article of the Creed God the Son, Jesus Christ, the one who was born into our flesh, so that He might take that perfect flesh and blood and sacrifice it on Calvary's cross once and for all to purchase us away from our slavery to sin, death, and the devil, and to give us eternal life. How are these gifts manifested to us? Well, that's the third article of the Creed. God the Holy Spirit works through God's Word, wherever it is proclaimed or taught or spoke about. He works through the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper to give us faith in these things so that we might trust in the promises of God and therefore have eternal salvation.
0: I think the Apostles' Creed is a great outline or a great structure to focus on many of our theological thoughts or discussions, and uh, you did a good job there, Vicar, too. Uh, Pastor, it says, How awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Who or what are these enemies that the psalmist is referring to that come cringing to God?
1: Well, the enemies of God uh, are sin, death, and uh, our own sinful nature, and uh, those things are all defeated by God uh, in His work through Jesus Christ. And it has this word picture then that is uh, in the introit of a um, a ruler who's been defeated in battle and now must come before uh, the victorious. Uh, uh, general or ruler and uh, beg for mercy. Perhaps uh, we can think of in the ancient Roman world, uh, like when uh, Vercingetorix was defeated by Julius Caesar at the yeah, Battle that of was Elysia. The, that was the first uh, thing that came to my mind. Right. That's what I figured. That's why I <laughs> mentioned it. Um, you know, When the battle is over, uh, Caesar has uh, Vercingetorix brought before him, stripped naked. He's uh, chained and taken to Rome, uh, paraded through town, and then eventually even killed. Um, And that's the idea of what happens to the loser in a a battle, is that they come before uh, the victorious one to beg mercy and uh, to show that they have
0: been subdued. Now, something that's a little bit more contemporary for me in the HBO miniseries, Rome, um, which was very, very well done historically. Unfortunately, it's very, very graphic and uh, difficult to watch, especially for uh, less than mature audiences. But at the end of the series, which ab- uh, ended abruptly, uh, Antony and Cleopatra are paraded in a victorious uh, Celebration. You've got like uh, all the military is parading before uh, Augustus and Octavian, who became Augustus, and um, Antony and Cleopatra had been dead for quite some time. And so, how they parade Antony and Cleopatra before the crowd and before Caesar is they have their dead bodies strapped to a chariot as if they're standing upright and they are paraded before and what a graphic graphic scene to remind us what awaits us is nothing but death and how if we cling to our false gods and our false idols that's how we are paraded that uh, that my, that image is uh, forever etched in my brain one last thing here on uh, this particular introit Oftentimes, during the season of Advent, there is an invitation that is um, either either prominent or at least implied in various readings and we have that here where it says, "Come and see what God has done." Pastor, how am I going to do that? Do I get into a time tunnel do uh, I get into a Delorean <laughs> Get into a uh, DeLorean and go back to the future. What do I do here? How do I come and see what God has done?
1: Yeah, the beautiful part is that God doesn't uh, make us have to go back in time uh, or find Doc Brown and a DeLorean um, and 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. Instead, God brings all that stuff to us here and now through the divine service, through the word, and through the sacraments so that we can come into contact with the forgiveness of God um, in our local towns and villages and uh, communities, uh, wherever the word of God is taught
0: and it's truth and purity there, God promises to deliver the goods. Come and see what God has done. What has he done? He's created you. He's redeemed you. He has called you by name. He has engrafted you into his son in the waters of holy baptism. And he continues to speak his words of love to you. This is the theme for the second Sunday after Epiphany when we come back from our break, we're going to go to a wedding and we're going to go to John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 and we're going to see Jesus first miracle. We'll be right back. Don't change that dial.
3: You are listening to K N N A L P 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska.
0: Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader. We're looking at the readings for the second Sunday after Epiphany. God loved the world so that he gave his only son the lost to save. Great, great hymn and a great theme for us as we look at our readings for today. We want to go right away now to our gospel reading. John 2 verses 1 through 11. Uh, Pastor Moline tells us there's about 10 hours worth of uh, radio stuff that we could do on this text. Um, uh, Don't change that dial. We're not going to do that. But uh, we're going to give you the highlights here in just a moment. Vicar, do you want to read those words?
2: On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him.
0: Manifested his glory. That's the uh, epiphany word, and that's the epiphany um, focus for this particular text. But there's a lot more here than just that word in verse 11 of John chapter 2. Pastor, where do you want to start with uh, the highlights of this particular text?
1: Yeah, there, there, there's a whole lot to talk about, isn't there? We could talk about how um, this happens on the third day, uh, which also brings to mind the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We could talk about, which I think the... Um, uh, The day of the uh, lectionary wants us to focus on the fact that this is a wedding, uh, that Christ is coming to bless, and uh, we have that in the epistle lesson as well, and the motif that uh, Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Uh, We can talk also then about the miracle itself and all the different aspects of uh, the water being turned into wine and the different jars that are there, Uh, and, and so there's a lot that we can talk about. Perhaps we just start, work our way verse by verse like we normally do.
0: Okay, um, it is uh, it is tempting to take a look at a miracle like this or any, any section of God's Word and immediately start to go to the allegory and, you know, this number symbolizes that action and miss what's actually happening here. So uh, we do have that third day, and I want to come back to that right. uh, because I think that's a, a very, very important aspect for us. Um, There's a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Pastor, tell us everything you know with regard to the uh, archaeological finds and all of the details that we know about the city of Cana.
1: The city of Cana is uh, likely a very small town, uh, just as uh, Nazareth would have been and also Bethlehem Uh, which we had a few weeks ago at Christmas. Uh, It's probably located to the uh, northeast slightly of uh, where Nazareth was. Um, And uh, it is, um, there's really nothing of importance there it's just another little small town in the uh the area of galilee and i think that's important because this shows us it's not a a big city wedding it's not uh, uh a fancy shindig it's just a small town uh event that's taking place and uh the mother of Jesus is there, which uh, indicates it might be a relative of Jesus, especially when uh, uh, Mary later on is worried about the fact they have no wine, which is a big faux pas. Um, why was Mary worried about this? Perhaps it's a relative uh, uh, of the family that's getting married. Uh, and uh, so, you know, Cana and Galilee, you can go and visit there uh, today. Uh, they have a spot where they have a church built to recognize this. Whether that's the exact spot or not, we don't know. That's what um, I want
0: to, you, you said probably, you said likely. Do we even know exactly where Cana was? Probably, but not for sure. Yeah, we, we don't have any archaeological digs. We don't have any exact thing. And I think this is, this is a, 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 an excellent point because this is such an insignificant spot In uh, in this part of the world, that nobody thought about preserving it, nobody thought about keeping it, and that's where most of us live and move and dwell throughout our entire lives. Exactly. Um, You know, the the big megapolis of Worms, Nebraska, uh, is pretty insignificant in the whole world. Vicar, sorry to burst your bubble. All right. And yet Christ dwells there. And that's what makes Cana significant, is the fact that Jesus is invited to the wedding.
1: Right, and, and it's not just the town, but also um, we don't have the names of this particular couple, and they're not anymore... Special or important than any couple uh, that gets married, even today, uh, in a place like Worms or a place like Lincoln or anywhere. And Christ still attends those weddings as well. Isn't that amazing? Important.
0: Isn't that amazing? Okay, so you mentioned before this, uh, this faux pas of uh, running out of wine. It's likely that Mary's even uh, is either uh, a relative or she's like, uh, what, what do they call when you... Bridesmaid? No, not a bridesmaid, but uh, a host couple, yep. you okay. know. So, you know, she's, she's got some authority here with regard to the hospitality room, at least. Wine at the wedding. Um, I've been to some weddings that are drunken brawls and i've been embarrassed and offended by that is that what's going on here or is there something else pastor
1: i don't i don't want to say there's no drunk people there we're not there to make that call or not but it is a part of the celebration for a wedding feast uh in that day and time we've talked before about kind of the uh, the way weddings took place where uh, they would get together and have a, a big you know almost a week-long feast and celebration as they rejoiced with a newly married couple and for whatever reason at some point during that celebration the wine is gone which i, I think could, it
0: was simon the zealot
1: simon the zealot
0: yeah all the disciples were invited, so must have been Simon the Zealot that was drinking more than his share. Maybe
1: that's <laughs> all right. I'm following you now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm teasing. You know, folks. <laughs> it it could be more people came or they might've drank more, or maybe the family hadn't purchased enough or there was a problem in the delivery. We don't know what the problem is, but it's a bad omen for the beginning of this wedding uh, that there's not enough wine there. It, it, it kind of signifies that perhaps they're getting off on the wrong foot, that there's some sort of problem that'll arise later on in the wedding uh, or the marriage, not the wedding. And um, so It's a problem for this couple that uh, this family is probably really concerned about wanting this wedding to get on the right foot.
0: I had a wedding uh, several years ago. It was uh, at the Cornhusker here in Lincoln, and it was a relatively small family affair. Some people that had just joined our congregation, and the folks at the Cornhusker brought out the wedding cake. They sat it on the table, which was a card table, and about... Halfway through the opening and introduction and getting ready for the meal and all that, one of the legs on the card table buckled, and the entire wedding cake slid off and went splat. <laughs> and uh, you want to talk about a faux pas? Uh, I'm the Cornhusker. I'm sure paid dearly for that. But uh, it was one of those things that people were saying, oh, I hope this isn't an omen. I hope this doesn't mean that they're going to get a divorce. And so people naturally think that way. So we have this problem. They're out of wine. And Mary, seeing the problem, um, goes to Jesus. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Tell me, Pastor. Pastor. Well, I think
1: it shows that uh, Mary remembers the words spoken to her by uh, angels and by God uh, that her son is going to be the Savior. And so she, uh, in this way, she does go to God uh, with the problem when she goes to her son. I think important to note here, too, is that the uh, the way the language is recorded for us in the Greek uh, does indicate this is, uh, uh, the words used in the Greek are spoken Greek, words it's the the common way people who are not of any particular uh education spoke that's recorded for us shows this is very likely real uh account of what was said at the time and uh so Mary goes and says to Jesus you know they have no wine this is a problem Jesus replies in the the English translation it sounds rather blunt woman what does this have to do with me but in the Greek it, it is just common you know uh woman, you know, uh, how is this our issue? Why is this our problem uh, sort of thing? What am I supposed to do about it? And yet Mary's faith still says Jesus is the one who can solve this problem. God is the one who can solve this problem because she goes on and says, do whatever Jesus says. Uh, and, and that indicates that she does remember who he is uh, according to the word of the angel.
0: And and knows that uh, God, God in Jesus, uh, is always for us right. and not against us and I think this also shows us that there is no problem uh, so insignificant to bring to God now you run out of wine at the wedding that just doesn't seem like that big of an issue today. Uh, you run out of wine well you know uh, give them the light beer you know what whatever but uh, this is a this is a big deal. this is a, a, a major embarrassment not only for the couple but for everybody in attendance. Jesus gives a phrase in between the two that you talked about, Pastor. Uh, After he says, what does this have to do with me? He says, my hour has not yet come. Vicar, what are your thoughts on that?
2: My hour has not yet come. We're in the epiphany season. Uh, Jesus is being revealed to us in the readings that we uh, choose for this season. And uh, Jesus is saying, I am not yet Ready to reveal myself, who I am completely to the world just yet, even though he still does the miracle. And through that miracle, something happens. The disciples do come to realize, oh, this man is a little bit different, and his disciples believed in him.
0: Good job. And uh, when we come back from our break, I want to talk just a little bit more about that word hour, because the word hour is a significant word in the Gospel of John. And we see it building and building and building all the way up into the latter chapters of John when Jesus is using this our word back and forth as he makes his march to the cross to win salvation for the entire world. That's what's being revealed here. He is who he says he is, the Christ, the Savior of the world. We need to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One, second Sunday after Epiphany. We'll be right back.
1: Back Sundays at noon on KNNA.
0: Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Albert Bader. We serve at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 8 and 1030. Sunday School for all ages in between. We also worship on Wednesday evenings year-round at 630. You can listen to us live, KNALP 95.7, in and around Lincoln, Every one of our worship services is broadcast live, and uh, if you don't have that capability, you can check us out on our website, www.thecross957.org, along with the archive sections and all the other wonderful programs that are available here at KNNA. We're looking at the readings for the second Sunday after Epiphany. We looked at our introit in Section 1, And in segment two, we looked at uh, our gospel reading from John 2. We got a good start, but uh, we've got so much more to talk about with regard to this particular text.
1: Nine and a half hours. Nine and a half. No, yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay, yeah, don't operate heavy machinery when you're listening to this program. Um, Now, uh, Jesus is confronted with the problem. He's at a wedding in Cana along with his mother and disciples. Uh, There's no mention of Joseph. I don't know that that means Joseph's not around or uh, Joseph's just in the background. We're not going to take that up today. But when confronted with the problem... Jesus says, um, you know, what is that to us? What's the problem? That's not our problem, kind of a thing. And then he says, uh, and uh, this is in verse four. 4, my hour has not yet come. I left off in segment two with a statement with regarding the significance of the word hour, H-O-U-R, in the Gospel of John. Pastor, do you want to share a few thoughts?
1: In the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about his hour that is coming uh, over and over and over and over again. And that hour uh, all leads up to his time upon the cross. So uh, later on in John chapter 4, when he talks to the woman beside the well, he says, The hour is coming when you won't worship on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem, uh, saying that the hour is coming when you'll worship Christ crucified. Uh, We have... uh, Later on, um, Jesus um, says, An hour is coming. This is John 5. Uh, and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of uh, God. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. In John chapter 7, uh, they were trying to uh, arrest Jesus, but they couldn't lay a hand upon him because his hour had not yet come. Uh, In John chapter 8, uh, they tried to arrest him in the temple, uh, but his hour had not yet come. And then in John chapter 12, uh, this begins uh, Jesus speaking to his uh, disciples before he's arrested. He says, Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, what should I say? Save me from this hour. No, for this purpose I have come. Uh, John chapter 13, Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world. John 16 um, says, Let's see. Um, when a woman is giving birth, she has sour because, sorrow because the hour has come. Uh, saying, the, and then goes on, says, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak with you. Uh, the hour has come when I, you will all be scattered. Uh, and then John seventeen one, Jesus culminates all this by saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And so all these things are leading up Uh, to Jesus on the cross when that hour comes to its fullness. And uh, uh, that's kind of the hour that Jesus is talking about throughout the entire book
0: of John. Uh, Marvelous job uh, expanding on how that word hour is used. And I think that's a good uh, illustration for us, how sometimes we can take a simple word like hour, in the Gospel of John, and do a complete word study or Bible study just on how that word is used. Jesus is building toward the hour, and he's talking specifically about the time when he is glorified, another big word in John, and believe it or not, he is glorified as his naked, dead body, hang suspended between heaven and earth on Calvary's cross. This is the glory of God as the Son of Man is sacrificed for the sin of the world. This is the hour. Um, It appears that Satan wins. The hour of the power of darkness. That also is in John. But this is Christ's hour. This is is Christ's glory. This is why he came. He uh, never was in doubt of his mission, and his hour had not yet come and yet he is now going to do the first of his signs and epiphany the world and show them who he really is, God in the flesh, because nobody could do this miracle. What What is the miracle that we're talking about here in John 2, 1 to 11? What does Jesus do after Mary says, do whatever he says? What does Jesus uh command do vicar
2: he simply commands the jars to be filled with water and they are then he commands that that water be taken out a little bit of it and given to the master of the feast and as that water is traveling to the master of the feast lo and behold it becomes wine that is what's going on here jesus gives a command and something happens the water becomes wine and not only just any wine but the master of the feast says you know this is the best wine uh
0: pastor tell us a little bit about the uh significance of these stone water jars i mean they're big jars of water 20 or 30 gallons uh they are big they're used for purification uh explain what this is all about yeah
1: it goes back um to the old testament um In Leviticus chapter 6 and also chapter 11, uh, we talk about the different types of pots that can be used for different particular things, specifically uh, in uh, cultic rituals and whatnot. And um, there's different types of pots that exist. There's pots that are made out of clay, and there's pots that are made out of stone. Uh, Pots that are made out of clay, according to Leviticus 6 and especially uh, Leviticus uh, 11, um, those pots can take uncleanness and impurity uh, into them, and therefore uh, they could pass that uncleanness on to you. And so, if you have a clay pot that touches something unclean, you're supposed to crush it and break it so that it can no longer be used, and therefore you won't uh, get that uncleanness into yourself. Uh, On the other hand, uh, Leviticus chapter 11 talks about how cisterns that are hewn into rock uh, will not pick up that uncleanness. And so uh, we also have this idea in ancient Judaism that flowing water is clean. And so they have all these uh, uh, trenches and uh, things like that that funnel water into cisterns uh, to be used for... uh, rituals of cleaning yourself and being made ritually clean. Now, if you're going to have a a shindig somewhere, a part of that would be you greet everyone that comes and you wash them so that they will be clean for your party so that your party can uh, go on a good foot. Uh, For example, at a wedding, you want everybody to be clean so the marriage begins on a good fit. Uh, But you can't have a cistern everywhere. So what do you do? You get a mini cistern which is a large stone pot um, that is carved out of the rock and these are not small these are huge as you said holding 20 or 30 gallons Um, then they're probably also six or seven inches thick the whole way around they're big and heavy hard to move around that's the kind of pot that is being used here it's not drinking water uh, no one would have drank out of any of these pots, uh, but rather it's water that's used to wash the people coming into the party so that they can be ritually
0: and ceremonially clean for the wedding celebration. Okay, and so uh, you hopefully you have a mental picture now. You, know, you think of a, a gas tank on uh, a car or an SUV that might hold 20 or 30 gallons. We're talking about a big structure here. And then you have something that is uh, several inches thick and made out of stone. This is uh, not something you pick up and carry around lightly. This is a big deal, and uh, this is a significant thing with regard to the cleanliness and uh, the ritual cleanliness laws of uh, the the ceremonial laws that God gave the Jews. Think Think of a Uh, A a clay pot that someone might have a tree planted in their backyard
1: in. That's the size of something we're talking about. Uh, And then imagine that that's six to eight inches thick made out of stone instead of clay.
0: Okay, so uh, Jesus commands them to uh, fill these uh, to the brim with, uh, and and we could speak a long time just on filling it to the brim. We could. (laughs) Uh, But we're not going to do that either. And he says, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Notice he doesn't say, pick up the pot and carry it over to the master of the feast. You couldn't do it. It's it, it too big. It would be really difficult to do. Okay, so he dips some out and takes it to the master of the feast. And, Vicar, then what happens? You alluded to this before.
2: The master of the feast tastes the, wa- tastes the water, now become wine. And he realizes, uh, why do we have this now? You know, you're, you're supposed to bring out this good stuff right away when uh, people's palates are still okay. And then uh, when they've had their fill, then give them the poor type wine when they don't really maybe know.
0: <laughs> I've had this conversation with your father, Pastor Moline, that uh, uh, for anyone who is a wine connoisseur and actually, and actually believes the words of the Bible... Oh, to be able to be at that feast at this particular time and to taste that wine that Jesus made. Perfect wine. Um, and it's, comment on that, Pastor. Well, I mean, the good news is, is
1: because we are Christians, um, the wine that we drink here, no matter how good or how bad will never be as good as the wine that's promised to us in heaven as Isaiah writes uh, the finest of wines on the mountain of the Lord uh, that we have to look forward to that wine uh, that Jesus makes here is a foretaste of the feast that is to come in God's kingdom uh, that these people got a taste and so we do have the promise that the best wine is always before us while we live in this sinful world
0: and that's a great picture too because we don't go back in time we don't have to long for going back in time because of what God has promised us in the future. Uh, Wine, too, I mean, that's part of the promise of the land as well. God
1: gives the land to them. When the spies go in Numbers 13 to spy out the land, what do they bring back to Moses to show how good of a land it is? They bring uh, a bunch of big grapes, Uh, and so this is also promising us as we look ahead to the land that is to come, uh, again, like I said, we get to drink that nice wine
0: in heaven with God. I've heard uh, some pastors and preachers uh, preach an entire sermon on the fact that the good wine that was held until now is really a picture of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Thought or comment on that, Pastor? Well, I I mean, there's so many things
1: about wine with God uh most importantly for us as Christians in the Lord's Supper, that one has a tough time not seeing that. Uh, All these things coming together in one place in this particular text. um, It's just amazing. Jesus takes... Uh, has these pots filled, uh, pots that are usually used for washing feet. The servants are laughing and giggling as they take some of this foot-washing water to the master of the feast, and instead it's the finest wine. It's not in the amphorae uh, that uh, wine usually comes in, uh, but instead it's in these big, ugly stone pots. Christ comes to a wedding, he blesses the wedding with his presence, uh, he uh, He teaches that uh, he's there to bless all weddings as a result. Most importantly, as we uh, look at uh, Ephesians 5, which is the epistle lesson, it's all a reflection of our relationship with Christ and the church, and, and that's yet to come. I don't know if that's where we're going to the epistle lesson uh, or if we're going to go to Amos uh, at the Old Testament lesson, but I, I either way. Gonna, I think we're going to come back
0: to John because i oh. I got more, I got more <laughs> to say. Well, good. Uh, that's because we still have nine hours left to go. Yes, all right. This is Proclaiming the One. We need to take a short break. Don't change that dial. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader. We're looking at the readings for the second Sunday after Epiphany. And I guess we can say readings because we did spend segment one looking at the introit. But uh, in what may be a first on Proclaiming the One, we're going to take this last segment and we're going to spend a little more time on our gospel reading. John 2, 1 to 11, the gospel reading for the second Sunday after Epiphany. There's just so much there. It is is uh, really, really hard to squeeze it all in to such a um, limited amount of time, and that's why you need to come to church and to hear these uh, great readings of Scripture preached on, expounded upon. Uh, dug into in deeper level at Bible study. Pastor, you got this little uh, gleam in your I eye. I see
1: what you did there. It's so hard to squeeze every drop out of this uh, particular text and get it in the wine glass. Yeah,
0: there you yeah. go. A uh, little double entendre. Uh, Pastor, something we haven't talked about yet is um, this is the first of his signs. Uh, John 2, verse 11. Now, we've talked about how the Gospel of John uses the word hour in a very dramatic way, uses the word glory in a very dramatic way. That's also in verse 11. But one of the significant things, and some people have uh, written entire commentaries on the Gospel of John with regard to the various signs that are given in the Gospel of John. So comment on signs in general, uh, signs in the Gospel of John and the significance of this being his first sign.
1: There's a whole show right there. I know, I know. Uh, In the Gospel of John, there are a number of signs that Jesus does that uh, do manifest the reality of who he is. Uh, The prophet that is promised by Moses, who will be like him, that we ought to listen to. Uh, The prophet who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. Uh, In fact, in John's Gospel, there are seven signs, a perfect number, uh, that display who Jesus is. Um, This is the fulfillment, like I said, of the Old Testament. In fact, I think John uh... in a lot of his writing is showing that jesus is the fulfillment of What Moses had promised and preached and done. Uh, And so Moses, as you'll remember, had the signs in Egypt uh, that uh, were done to manifest God's glory before Pharaoh uh, so that the people of Israel might go out of bondage in Egypt and enter into the promised land, uh, passing through water twice, once in the Red Sea uh, and once also the Jordan River. Uh, And uh, all these things, these ideas that were written of in Moses in the Pentateuch uh, are fulfilled and shown to be uh, completed in the signs that Jesus does uh, here in John's Gospel. Uh, a lot of the language as well and the discussions and the discourses in John's Gospel uh, reflect that as well. With, uh, For example, John 3, just as Moses lifted up the servant. The serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. Uh, We have the woman at the well in the uh, Pentateuch. Where do you go to get married? You go and find your wife at the well. Uh, All these pictures brought to their completion in John's gospel
0: uh, in the person and work of Jesus. Now, this is the first of his signs, uh, which leads us to believe that Jesus performed no miracles until this time. This particular miracle is the first of his sign, Vicar, and it manifested his glory. What did this particular sign manifest or epiphany about the person and work of Jesus Christ?
2: Well, it is revealing himself to be not only a man, but also to be 100% true God. Uh, Go back through this reading again and see what Jesus actually did. He never touched the water jars he never uh, got water from somewhere else and actually poured it in there Jesus simply said a command and what he said came into being the water became wine and this takes us all the way back to the beginning of all things Genesis 1 Uh, how did God bring forth all of creation he simply spoke a word and it appeared before him
0: I'm glad you brought it to creation because God spoke the word and everything came into being. God tells us that everything was created through the word, the second person of the Trinity. And now we have the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, who is speaking the word and creating wine out of water. Uh, No, this is no magician's trick. No mere mortal could do this. This has to be God. God at work. Now, Pastor, I want to take us all the way back to the beginning. We gave uh, a little bit of a teaser, and I said, we're not going to talk about this now, we're going to talk about it later. The very first words of our text, on the third day. Now, whenever we see the number three, uh, Christians are prone to think of Trinity, one God and three persons, three go- three persons in one God. And when we have the third day, This is significant as well. We have Abraham and Isaac making the journey in Genesis 22 for the near sacrifice of Isaac. And on the third day, they reach out. Whenever we have this third day in Scripture, this points us forward to something. Talk about that, please. Yeah, the third day
1: uh, has to do with the crucifixion of Christ and then his resurrection. The promises is that he will rise again from the dead on the third day, just as he does. Uh, He's killed on Good Friday. He's in the tomb Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Sunday he arises. Uh, We have that with Jonah, three days in the belly of the fish. Uh, We have that with Abraham and Isaac, like you said. Uh, And all these things... uh, find their fulfillment in Christ's death and resurrection. Um, All of them are teaching us long before the arrival of Christ that that's exactly what's going to happen. And I think uh, in that same frame of mind we have to understand this is a wedding as well and uh, our epistle lesson talks about how a husband uh, is to love his wife in the same way that Christ loved the church giving himself up for her to wash her and cleanse her so that she might be radiant and beautiful and uh, this happens on the third day uh, Christ rises and is married to us washing us in the waters of holy baptism so that we might be beautiful in his presence so that we might uh, be cleansed and purified so that we can be a holy bride to Christ. And the church is the bride of Christ and finds its fulfillment then in all these things. Just so much to take in and put together and weave in a way uh, that we can understand it. Uh, it Clearly, it's difficult to do with this particular text, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. And uh, yet it's a beautiful illustration of uh, how to preach or understand, if you're not a pastor, a miracle. One of the things, uh, you know, I've supervised, I don't know, 15 or 16 or 18 vicars now. And one of the most difficult things that uh, vicars seem to have a problem with uh, with regard to writing a sermon is how do you preach a miracle? And uh, I think this text gives us a beautiful example of how to understand a miracle text, and they are throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, but there are Old Testament miracles as well, like the axe head floating on the water and these kind of things. So, Vicar, uh, you're going to school right now. Mm -hmm. There are two things that you need to know and understand and bring out of every miracle
2: text. Beautiful. Enlighten me, please. Okay,
0: yeah, well, you need to be enlightened. (laughs) Uh, Epiphany? Yes, you need to be (laughs) epiphanied. Yeah, that would be a miracle. First and foremost, when a miracle happens, whether it's a a miracle of nature, calming the storm, uh, walking on water, healing the sick, raising the dead, changing water into wine, this shows us who Jesus is because no mere mortal can do a miracle. Might be able to do a magician's trick, but you can't do a true miracle. So every miracle teaches us that Jesus is God in the flesh. And this gets us back to verse 1 every miracle is like a preview of coming attractions. Every miracle is a foretaste of the mother of all miracles, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The third day makes us think of Jesus rising from the dead after being in the tomb for three days. Beautiful example and illustration of how to understand a miracle. Jesus is God as he claims to be. Every miracle points us forward toward Easter Sunday. Now, the last thing I want to talk about here is uh, something that I've, I've done many times before during Bible study. I don't know if I've ever done it in a sermon or not. But this text is a beautiful text for Christians To combat the error of evolution. Say what? (laughs) Yes. Say, for example, you are able to take this wine that Jesus has made. You are able to take this to a scientist's lab. You take the wine to him or her, and the scientist examines this wine. What's the scientist going to come up with? Well, this is perfect wine. It was grown on grapevines that were the optimum age, 8, 10, 12 years. It had the perfect uh, sunlight. It had the perfect nutrients. It had the perfect soil. It has been aged perfectly. And scientific data, or carbon dating, if you want to use that, would tell you how old this wine is. You know that this wine is only minutes old Because you were there and you saw Jesus speak the word and the water becomes wine. We have a beautiful illustration here of how every human effort, every human attempt, every scientific method to prove, whether it be the age of the earth or any other details in Holy Scripture, cannot be comprehended by mere mortals. The truth is... The truth of God and the truth of his word and the truth of his salvation must be revealed to us. Pastor, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think that is uh, an important thought for us to consider. There's a a documentary on Netflix called Psalm about sommeliers uh, who... They get their uh, master certification in tasting wine and they can taste an unknown bottle of wine and they can tell you the soil it was grown in, uh, the year it was bottled, the place it was grown, even into the region, not just, uh, you know, big like California or whatever. They can get into the particular valley just by tasting it uh, and smelling it. And that's not the way that this happens. This is the best wine, the man says. Why did you save this till now? And uh, that is... The miracle of christ that uh, he delivers the best things in ways that perhaps are unexpected and out of the normal and uh, that's what he does for all of us as well by giving us unexpected forgiveness life and salvation by his cross by his death by his resurrection he gives us the best
0: uh what a great message that is and the best that god can give us is his son Bleeding, dying, rising, still performing miracles today, creating Christians out of poor, miserable sinners, giving new life in the waters of holy baptism, feeding us and sustaining us through his inspired, inerrant, infallible word, and feeding us as well with the very body and blood of Jesus crucified and risen for us. That is the steadfast love of the Lord for you. So I've got some encouragement for you this week when it comes to Sunday morning. Get up, drink your coffee, read your paper, go to church. What time would the services be? Oh, the services at Good Shepherd are at 8 and 1030. And on Wednesday evenings at 630, you're always welcome at Good Shepherd. And we are glad that you joined us for this particular episode of Proclaiming the One. We'll be back again next week and take a look at the readings for the third Sunday after Epiphany. God's richest blessings in Christ.